who's listening guys welcome back and my name is grayson man and this is the man with the plan podcast this is going to be a monday morning ish we'll see what time i wake up it is still winter break for me so we'll kind of we'll figure that out as we go but today we got an exciting episode episode 110 crazy guys and thank you for twelve thousand listeners on the show you guys have actually been killing it especially on the times when i'm away the numbers kick see kick they, they seem to escalate and it's insane to think that the show has grown its own legs to be able to kind of keep the show moving and it means a lot to me to know that i don't have to constantly tend to it for the show to do well and that i thank you guys a lot so let's get thirteen thousand listeners let's just keep it going we're on that road now. I think we're at 12,126 last time I checked. Crazy, very specific, but still, what do we have on deck for today? Today we have what I think might have been the greatest semifinal weekend in college football. And for the playoff, and I think with the f- expansion coming very, very soon, sooner than I originally thought, I think we got our best for last with college football. And I think it's either 23 or 24, so drop it in the comment because I'm not exactly sure. But I'm excited for it. Nonetheless, 12 teams should be an electric finish. And now we had TCU, Georgia, Ohio State, and Michigan all clash for a national championship hope. And Georgia and TCU ended up being our final two. We'll talk about that too. We'll see. We'll preview the national championship as well. We'll talk about my experience at the Orange Bowl. I got to cover it for Tiger Illustrated. Super thankful for that second opportunity and the second chance to be a part of the sports media industry. Very, very fun. And then we'll talk about NFL Week 17. And the NFL playoff outlook, there are three spots left on the line. The AFC South title still for grabs. Can Trevor Lawrence close the deal in Duval? Can the Patriots, Steelers, or the Dolphins get that seventh spot in the AFC? And then the NFC, Aaron Rodgers is creeping up. And I think he just might be your playoff dark horse. We'll talk about all that in episode 110 of the Man with the Plan podcast. CFP semifinals, let's get them started. So what if I told you that the CFP semifinal, let's let's go back all the way to August. And what if I told you that Texas Christian University would be in the national championship? Big shock, right? What if I told you that in August, Jim Harbaugh would be not only beating Ohio State twice, getting the Big Ten championship twice in a row for two straight years and put up 45 in the college football playoff and still lose? You'd be pretty shocked, right? What if I told you that Ohio State wouldn't be even in the Big Ten championship and yet still have a double-digit lead over Georgia in the fourth quarter and still find a way to lose with C.J. Stroud playing the best game of his collegiate career? You'd be shocked, right? That was the college football playoff on Saturday, and boy, what an event it was. It started with TCU and Michigan as I was listening to it on the radio with Max Duggan and them taking control very early on in this game. The entire storyline for the entire month of December was that Michigan's physicality, even without Blake Corum, would be able to handle TCU in a big fashion. I believe Michigan was a big point in terms of the spread for Vegas. I think Michigan was heavily favored in almost every outlet, in every book that you checked. Michigan, though you had to take the Wolverines, I said on the podcast with Luke Winstall, episode 109 that you should check out. I said that Michigan will be in the national championship and perhaps win it as they match up good with Georgia, at least this year. I was incorrect. Michigan taking the first play with Donovan Edwards straight down the middle into the end zone and then leading a Philly special type of play on fourth and goal. Even still, I was confident in the Wolverines. TCU is in the national championship. Can you believe it? I I certainly can't. And I think 
when Kansas was playing TCU on college game day, it never dawned on me that, hey, this team could maybe make a run and go to the national championship. Maybe New Year's Six crossed my mind. Winning the Big 12 crossed my mind, especially with Oklahoma struggling the way they did. I think the, what, what I'm trying to get at is you have to credit Sonny Dykes for an unbelievable first year, dominating FCS football with North Dakota State and making his way into the Power 5 picture and getting to the national championship with a chance to have a very significant upset on his hands against the Georgia Bulldogs. I thought TCU played a fantastic game, very balanced, and they never flinched. I think what I my thought process was when TCU was up 21-6, to six, it was okay. They've been on the opposite side of this. Every game, it felt like TCU found a way to get down, and they were the comeback kids. They were the team that you didn't want to see have a 10-point deficit because they were always a team that didn't flinch, the hypnotoads. They never really looked like they showed any fear. It's like one of those predator things, like, oh, they can smell fear. TCU never lets you smell it. They never let you get anywhere close to it. And so you thought, okay, they're up 21-6. to How do they handle being on the receiving end? I put out a tweet, and you should follow me on Twitter, I said, how does TCU go in halftime? What is Sonny Dyke's message? How does they how do they handle this? How do they handle not being the one in the face of adversity? They got to be able to keep Michigan's rally. They got to keep them away. They got to keep them at bay. And they did that for a majority of this game. They were able to control it. Max Duggan played the game of his life. And what a story for him, having heart issues during COVID, breaking his leg his junior year and coming out and throwing for two touchdowns. He didn't throw the ball as well as I thought, but I think he still was able to get a connection with Quentin Johnston and really be able to revive what that makes that TCU offense special. And they ran the ball very well, and they were very, very physical on the other end. And they were able to create points on defense, which what good championship teams do. They create points on offense, and they create points on defense. They're able to have a balance. One doesn't dominate the other, and TCU was able to do that on both sides of the football. It was a heck of a game. Unexpected. It kind of reminded me of the Rose Bowl in 2018 where Oklahoma got up big and quick, and Georgia was able to kind of take the punches and go, okay, we're unfazed. We've been here before. Even though that was their first CFP appearance, they played like they'd been there, like Alabama, for four straight years. At that time, of course. But yeah, TCU, unbelievable story, unbelievable chapter in their career, or in Sonny Dyke's career, and that program is taking the right step forward. I'm really excited to see how TCU plays in the national championship. I don't think I'm necessarily going to pick them, but I think Georgia's got their hands full. And speaking of, like I said before, Georgia struggled, I think, in this game. This was a game where Ohio State was up 38-24. to 24. They had the game at hand. I thought Ryan Day called one of his better games in his career. It was similar to the Sugar Bowl with Clemson, where they just kind of came out and they just kept pushing the issue. C.J. Stroud, they threw, through through, and they were able to get their run plays in, maybe five, six yards here, seven, eight yards here. But the majority of this game rested on the right arm of C.J. Stroud. And boy, was he electric. And I think I would argue his best collegiate game right before the, re- the lead up to the draft. And I think this is just chatter with my own, within my own family who know football. And I'd say pretty well. He said, C.J. Stroud's making a case for the number one pick tonight. And I know he didn't win the Heisman, but he was a two-time finalist. And at Ohio State, the big program recognition, he's played his best ball when it matters the most. The Rose Bowl in 2022 against Utah, where he led that comeback with Jackson Smith and Jigba. And Jigba. And in fr- Saturday, Friday's Saturday's game. Goodness, I'm getting my days mixed up with the whole vacation. But yeah, CJ's played his best games when it's mattered the most. I'm usually not very high on Ohio State quarterbacks, given the track record when you got guys like Haskins and you got other guys in the past who have not been able to kind of 
mold to the NFL game and uh, do it as well. But Justin Fields looks to be the one that breaks that trend with Ohio State quarterbacks, and I'm excited to see it. Also, other Ohio State quarterbacks, JT Bear comes to mind as well. Braxton Miller transitioned to a wide receiver. So I never was like, oh, I'm all in on CJ Stroud, but you come in and you take this Georgia defense that's much improved from last year, believe it or not, despite losing five starters on defense going to the NFL draft. They looked pretty good. They looked pretty weak out there. And I think it was a lot of motion. It was a lot of play action. The Ohio State offensive line, who had been criticized going to this game, played their best game, giving CJ enough time to be able to survey the field. He was making throws to Marvin Harrison Jr., who, goodness, plays like his father. Good Lord. <laughs> it was unbelievable to see. And I think as a Buckeye fan, don't pull the trigger on firing Ryan Day. I heard a lot of that conversation after the Michigan game. He's 45 and six as the coach of the Buckeyes. I think that was the best at 45 and five. It was the best record for any coach with a minimum of 50 games under his belt. So I think you got to give him a lot of credit. He coached a hell of a game. He kept them in it. And at the very end, it just wasn't in the cards for him. It came down to a kick field goal that ended up shanking left as the ball dropped on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day for 2023. I thought that was pretty cool. The kick went up in 2022 and it went down in 2023 with Pat McAfee screaming his ears off on his little Manning-esque cast. But I think looking ahead, let's look towards the future. Does TC, I think the big question for the next couple of days will be, can TCU match up with Georgia's physicality? I think that's always going to be there. Will they almost in a mental sense, be able to go, okay, we've matched Michigan's physicality, but it could be a completely different level for Georgia. And I think TCU needs to look at the Ohio State film and say, okay, we need to get Max Duggan, who can run with the football, get him out in motion, a lot of play action, a lot of disguises, a lot of things this way, maybe a jet motion that way. I think you have to really give Georgia a lot to digest and make them make decisions on the fly. I think that's where Ohio State had the most success last night. I think TCU needs to attack that. And on defense, they need to make Stetson Bennett uncomfortable. There was a couple plays here and there last night where Bennett was kind of forcing it where it wasn't really there. They have to do that, and they have to do that often and consistently. Stetson's a gamer. He's gotten so much better in his three years at quarterback with Georgia, the year that they went to the Peach Bowl, the national championship year, and this year where he was a Heisman finalist. He's taken significant strides in his game. He's got that clutch gene. He's a little cocky. He's a little arrogant, but it really plays well to his game. He's 25 years old, he's experienced, and he's been in this situation before. So TCU, I think striking first is important. You've got to hammer the Ohio State team tape on the flight to LA. Really excited about it. I'm going to take the Bulldogs, though, to win 38-24. to I, I really just think Georgia's going to be too much for them. TCU's a nice story, but I think Georgia's on the verge of a dynasty. And so when we return, I'm going to take a short break, get some water. We're going to talk about my experience at the Orange Bowl and what went wrong for the Clemson Tigers coming up. All right, so if you guys weren't aware, I was hired about a month ago by Tiger Illustrated, which is a part of the Rivals.com network. I'm super excited about that to continue the sports writing journey and getting to learn under one of the best in the game, Larry Williams. So if you're listening, man, thank you so much. Going to have you on the podcast soon. Very excited about that part. We're going to talk about the Orange Bowl, kind of my experience and what I saw in the game, what I kind of what was my thoughts? And I think a lot of people were curious. They're going, hey, you were at the Orange Bowl. What did you think? So Tennessee obviously won this game 31 to 14. And it was really, I, I, I this is not going to be a controversial take by any means. I think Clemson lost this game more than Tennessee won it. It was very close. It was 14 to six for a long time. But I think there's a lot of factors 
and there's going to be a there was a lot of angry Clemson fans, of course, as it is per a Clemson loss. There's a lot of energy surrounding that. So let's just go down the list. And I think the first thing you have to start with is Cade Klubnik, who played very well, I think, in this first game. This is his first start where everybody knows in the stadium that number two is walking on the field. It's not like the ACC championship game where DJ Uyungle, who is now at Oregon State. So congrats to him, uh, who has two series, doesn't go well, and Cade Klubnik comes in, and North Carolina has no clue. In the post-game press conference, Mac Brown was unsure. He, he knew Cade was going to play at some point, but he wasn't aware that Cade was going to come in in Series 3 and just completely light it up. And that UNC defense was very weak, one of the worst in the Power 5, so Cade obviously had a lot of success. And then Tennessee has a month to kind of go, okay, what can we do to like kind of mess it up? And I think I thought Cade distributed the football very well. There was a couple things, though. I think they had a couple of those brutal freshman mistakes that you kind of see with typical freshman quarterbacks trying to do too much, and it ends up in a costly mistake. Sometimes turnovers. He had two interceptions on a Friday, but I don't think they were interceptions that you can go, oh, man, he shouldn't have thrown that. They were both on a trying to make a play desperately at the end of the game. They were both prayers, and it just kind of went – it was the way that it went. I think his worst mistake of the night was that where he, the Clemson had no timeouts and they were in the red zone, an opportunity to at least score a field goal, get three, get some momentum going, maybe cut it to one possession. Clemson and Cade Klubnik, he, he's a, he rolls out the pocket, he steps up in the pocket, and I think he saw an open avenue to scramble and he takes a sack. And Klubnik, with no timeouts, is able, not able to stop the clock. And Clemson goes into halftime with no points. That's a brutal mistake, and that's something that when you have a couple of games under your belt, you have film, you have coaches in your ear, you're consistently able to hear that stuff. That's when you're able to go, okay, I need to be able to take care of the football here. And I'm sure they told them that, but it's different when you're in game and guys are in your face and you have to make a split-second decision. That's something you learn over time. It's different at Westlake than it is against Tennessee and the Orange Bowl. These things happen. But on the other hand, you will have a majority of people saying that that mistake could have been easily avoided should he had more experience should he have had more experience earlier in the season, maybe starting and taking over for the job earlier for Uyungle. But with hindsight, we can say that now. It's kind of one of those things where you go, well, we could have seen it happen here, but we didn't. And that's kind of the reality of it. So we just have to look at it for what it is. And Klubnik, he played well, didn't play perfect. He didn't play like he did against UNC. There's still a lot of positives that you can take. He threw the ball 51 times, which shows a lot of trust from the coaching staff and Dabo Sweeney to be able to do that. So it's just kind of that thing. When I was covering Clemson at Clemson football in the summer and they were doing those practices, for me, Klubnik was a guy that when he spoke, everybody listened. And I think that's going to carry very strongly now that he is the guy. It's not him barking at the uh, second string offensive lineman. The whole team will now rally around him. Clemson football's face is now Cade Klubnik, and they've got a lot of special things going on there. The second thing on the list is the special teams. Clemson drives down the field on their first opening possession, and they try a fake field goal in scoring territory, a 44-yard field goal, which is pretty automatic for B.T. Potter, who had a, one of his worst nights of his career. He went two for five. He had three misses, and I think two of them were for 50 yards. It was just a – it wasn't Potter's best night, and I think part of that was that special teams pitch where they went with Drew Sweeney and B.T. Potter on like a speed option in the beginning of the game. I think for Sweeney, I think the situational awareness was off there. It was a 80-20 environment for Tennessee to Clemson fans. From my vantage point in the press box, it felt like Clemson, Tennessee was outnumbering Clemson. It felt like 
there weren't many Clemson fans there, and that's nothing against Tiger fans. I think this was Tennessee's biggest game in years. I looked back, and I was like, I'm interested. There's a lot of fans here. This is a big deal for them. The last New Year's Six Bowl for them was in 2004 in the Cotton Bowl. This was a big deal for Tennessee. It's been 18 years since they've even won a New Year's Six Bowl. So coming in with Joe Milton, there's a lot of a lot of excitement around this Tennessee program for them to win 11 games this year was a big deal against a prominent program like Clemson. I think for Dabo, you got to kind of have that in mind saying, Hey, this is a pretty hostile crowd. Let's take the points and it prevents Tennessee from taking over on a short field and be able to move the ball downfield with ease. It keeps the defense and offense. It kind of keeps the momentum in check and doesn't allow huge swings in such a hostile environment. And you're saying it's a bowl game. You had to really be there to see it. And I think on the broadcast, you can probably see it too. Every time that Tennessee had Clemson on the field on offense, it was loud. You can hear it through the box. And they had the glass to kind of cover it up so you couldn't hear much. It was loud. And Tennessee fans, they made sure their presence was known. So congratulations to the Tennessee Volunteers. I think for Joe Milton, he was auditioning for that starting job. They got the five-star Nico coming in. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. Apparently his NIL valuation is off the charts. He's got a cannon of an arm. I haven't really seen his tape. So I really don't know what to say, but from what people have told me, he is one of those special, special prospects. So I think Milton really needed this game to go well for him. He's got a rope of an arm, even in warmups, just throwing 50-yard balls with complete lack of effort. It was insanity to see. I was very impressed with him. He was able to control the ball well, take advantage of Clemson's mistakes on special teams, and turn them into six points each time. Tennessee played their hearts out. Heupel outcoach Sweeney. And that's how you kind of you, you end 22 with a bitter taste in your mouth if you're a Clemson fan. But I think there's a lot of positives to take. You got guys like Barrett Carter, breakout season, Joseph Nagata. He's got a tough decision to make as he had to hit one of his better games as a Tiger, looked to be Cade's go to guy all night. Now I'm going to be posting on some Tiger Nets. I'm very curious to see the kind of reaction. But my takeaways from the Orange Bowl is I think Sweeney got out coached. There were situations where they had, there was a situation where Tennessee was fourth down. And Dabo immediately sent out the punting unit and Tennessee kept their offense on the field, which meant they had to take a timeout or they would have taken a five-yard penalty and made up fourth and one in Tennessee's plus territory. And they had to waste a second timeout with six minutes left in the fourth quarter. That was a crucial error and kind of summated. It It was the summation of the night where the Tigers had a chance to get a stop here, really put Tennessee on their heels, and they had made a bad mistake here, a bad mistake there, a freshman mistake by Cade. It is what it is, and I think you got to kind of look at it with hindsight being 2020. You make some different decisions here. You make some different decisions there. That's how you go with it. Whether you want to have significant changes like they did in 2012 when they got 20, yeah, 2011, 2012 when Geno Smith came and embarrassed them in the Orange Bowl. If you want to make significant changes there, that's your prerogative. I think we kind of kind of have to wait this one out and kind of see how Clemson reacts to the portal. Who's taking off in a, that defensive line group? Is KJ and company going to stay? Are people going to take off? Who's going pro? Who's not? Is the portal going to be used? How does this roster change in the next six months before spring? Next six months before really the start of fall camp and about two or three months before they really start to get going for spring ball. I'm excited to see it and I'll be covering it nonetheless. So guys, stay tuned for that. But up next, we're going to talk some NFL playoffs. There's a lot in the line and the Saturday games just got announced. Let's talk about them. Stay tuned. All right. So as I was taking that break, the NFL Saturday games for week 18 just got announced. And I'm very excited for it. So let's kind of backtrack because as this podcast come out comes out, we have a big Monday night game on our hands with Cincinnati and Buffalo. So I thought, you know what? Why don't we just go ahead and preview that? We got Joe Burrow and the Bengals who have already beaten the top seed in the AFC with Kansas City and the Buffalo Bills with Josh Allen trying to get that one seed 
all three of those teams in my mind can get out of the AFC and win the Super Bowl. It's a very, very interesting preview, almost kind of similar when Kansas City came into Cincinnati and they had a duel for the ages. Only for it to be followed up with another duel for the ages in the AFC Championship game last year. So could we potentially see that happen again? I wouldn't be shocked if Buffalo and Cincinnati end up matching up. Joe Burrow gets another chance to knock off what is another top quarterback in this in this league and in the conference. I'm very excited for it. If you're a Pats fan like me, you need Cincinnati to beat Buffalo and Kansas City to take care of business on Saturday for a potential starter rest because Lord knows I don't think New England is going to beat Buffalo next Sunday in uh, Buffalo if all the starters are playing desperate for that one seed. So let's kind of talk about it. Trevor Lawrence is playing on Saturday night to close out the AFC South in year two. And I think it kind of makes me think this season more than others. And I'm going to give four examples. We got Dan Campbell, Doug Peterson, Matt Patricia, and Nathaniel Hackett. One of those is already fired. One of those should be demoted or on his way out. And two of those have had unbelievable turnarounds with shots to make the playoffs on Sunday. Coaching matters, y'all. In the NFL, and this season we've learned, it makes all the difference. Let's start with the Denver Broncos, who are just at 4-12. So much to dig up with them. So much baggage. They hit fired Nathaniel Hackett, was who is essentially Aaron Rodgers' buddy on the Green Bay Packers, and it's been nothing short of disaster. The Broncos have won four games. Their offense has looked incompetent at points, and Russell Wilson, their Broncos country, let's ride guy, has been a disaster. And I think a lot of it, you can't put all of it on Russell Wilson, who has shown consistently through in, in and out. He has been the guy for the Seattle Seahawks winning a Super Bowl. Darn near close to it if they had been able to run the ball with Marshawn Lynch. I don't think he's entirely to blame. There's a lot of rumors flying around that his, his having an office is a problem. Him having his own parking spot is a problem. Denver Broncos players went to Twitter to defend him. I don't think Russ is the problem. The Broncos are still an unbelievable roster who just made a really bad hire and it made all the difference in tight game scenarios. I think the Broncos were in about seven or eight, one possession football games where if it goes their other way, we could be talking about them completely differently. They had to hire a guy two weeks into the season to help Nathaniel Hackett manage the clock after a disaster in Seattle, where they decided to kick a 64 yard field goal instead of trusting their $240 million quarterback on fourth and four. A lot of questionable decisions can lead to losses that can spiral and can change the dynamic of a locker room. When you have players fighting on the field and punching backup quarterbacks, you know you got a problem at the top. You know you have a problem in the locker room when there's not a structure. I think Nathaniel Hackett just lacked structure, and it was able to put away a team that is now in a really bad spot. They can't pick in the top five and improve the roster. They're just going to be a sitting duck in this NFL draft, kind of waiting for things to settle it out. Maybe they can attract some free agents. Russell Wilson could be a hell of a recruiter. We could see. But I think that's your first example of how bad hires can put you in a tough spot. So let's go to New England, who somehow, by some miracle, have a 500 record and have a shot at the playoffs on Sunday. But they got to go up against the foe that's really just kicked the snot out of them for the last two years in the Buffalo Bills. The Pats are 1-3 and three in their last four meetings, which includes the playoffs and two beatdowns and one really wacky game where the weather really gave Belichick a chance to show his coaching really his chops. And I think in this offseason, New England had a choice to make with Josh McDaniels departing. Who's going to be the guy to help Mac Jones in his development in year two? And I think Belichick hired some yes men with Joe Judge and Matt Patricia. And it's the result has been a really about as incompetent of an offense as you can see. You really look in certain spaces. The spacing is off on the routes. 
Mac Jones is under a lot of duress. There's a lot of missed signals, missed calls. Mac Jones having to rush the snap at last second, trying to get receivers in the right spot. He is doing everything he can out there. And I know there's a hat on the head. I am frustrated by it. It is really interesting to see you go from year one where Mac Jones has one of the best rookie seasons by an NFL quarterback and goes down to this where it looks really painful to watch sometimes. These coaching hires matter. Getting a guy like Bill O'Brien may have been on Belichick's radar and he just couldn't get him. And maybe they're just trying to tide it over till 2023. That could be the case. And then them making the playoffs in this kind of weird bridge year for the coaching staff could be considered a success. But I think if you're Belichick, you have to look at how the season's gone. Look at some of these losses where if they had put up points here, put up points there, they have to feel, really have to work around this coaching staff and put the puzzle pieces back together. It's kind of putting the there's like the stuff at the doctor's office when you're little and you have to put the circle in the circle, the square in the square and the triangle, the triangle. Bellatrix tried to put the triangle in the square in the circle in the triangle, and it has not worked out whatsoever. That's what you get when you put a defensive coordinator, a defensive minded guy in an offensive coordinator position where he has zero experience. Sometimes it just doesn't work out the way you think. And I think when you look at it on the other side, you got guys like Doug Peterson and Dan Campbell who took over disasters, the Lions being one of them the Jaguars with Urban Meyer, and you look at guys who change the culture, who run an offense as smoothly as they do. The Lions just put on a show against Chicago. They're 8-8. Eight and eight. That's the best season they've had in a long time when Jim Caldwell was coaching the team. Doug Peterson, the Jaguars, could make a similar run. Everyone is kind of saying, ooh, this isn't really a team I want to play. In the postseason, Trevor Lawrence is having his best year. Granted, he's only had two, but when you compare it to last year, and the absolute just unbelievable and I've said disaster a lot in this segment because a lot of these are. When you look at the difference between Urban Meyer and you bring in a guy like Doug Peterson who has a Super Bowl in his belt, Super Bowl ring on his hand, he comes in and the result is evident. Jaguars players in the locker room saying they're, they're willing to kill a man for Doug Peterson. It's ridiculous how much one coach can make such a difference. Could we have seen more Trevor Sparks in year one? We'll never know, but hindsight being 2020, I don't think the Jaguars would do that again. And then you look at just the overall picture. I'm very excited. So I'm going to actually give my predictions for the final playoff spots. I think the seventh seed is going to go to the Packers because Aaron Rodgers, out of nowhere, has come alive. And the, the Green Bay Packers, it sounds like Aaron Rodgers just some, some years he just wants to go, guys, relax. And then they just do it. It's crazy. I'm not the biggest fan of Aaron Rodgers, but I like what they're doing. And I, I kind of want to see how it ends. But with the Lions, I'm like, I'm very conflicted, guys. It's crazy. So drop your playoff predictions below. For the fourth seed in the AFC South, I'm going to take the Jacksonville Jaguars. Malik Willis is just going to be outmatched in this one, and I think Jacksonville's been playing their best football, and they're going to continue to do that. And for the seventh seed in the AFC, I'm going to go with my homer pick with the Patriots. I think they can find a way, even if it's not against Buffalo. I think they've done enough, especially beating the Dolphins, to be able to give themselves a chance in the postseason so guys this is episode 110 of the man plan man with a plan podcast man plan man with plan thank you guys so much let's get 13,000 listeners let's keep it rolling thank you guys so much as always take care and have a fantastic day.